0: classic um, podcast language is that we use this bit before where we're all talking and preparing as the bit the intro and then now is when it hits the
1: this is the british uplands podcast with byron pace and sarah roberts an exploration of change in one of the UK's most important landscapes.
0: Grant to tear down trees, plant to put hedges, planted to dig ditches, plants put on sheep. No grounds for sheep, sheep come off.
1: That, yeah. Oh, the
2: uplands—they're burning the peat. If you hear a simple argument, put forward about how
0: the uplands need to be managed, then that's a simple argument has to be wrong definitely cool. going to cut that out of the podcast <laughs> okay well welcome to the british uplands podcast with byron pace and sarah roberts and uh, producer davy shanks exactly uh, this is our final episode where we thought we'd finally get together all in one room for the first time since we started this project um to try and discuss a little bit about what we've found out it's been five episodes spanning a vast range of very complicated subjects how many speakers byron 22 or yeah, three, I think? 20 voices. Yeah. Uh, and there's been a lot of information. So it's time to talk about it, talk about what we found, and uh, sort it all out, finally.
2: Finally, and then we'll find all the solutions. Your brain was definitely a bit frazzled, So I remember sitting with you. <laughs> we stopped at a friend of ours' place uh, when we were on this journey, after six days or seven days of interviewing, you just like interviewing multiple people every day and I could just see your brain melting.
1: Information overload. Yeah, I kind of felt like I'd plugged into some sort of other world net and I needed to get it off my head at one point. It was, yeah, I remember actually just taking a strong gin and tonic and sitting out in the garden.
0: <laughs> yes, I do. I just mean,
1: looking out into space solemnly. It's all coming back to
0: me now, yeah. <laughs> so what I think might be quite helpful just to, to set out People have been listening to both of you journeying around the country. So let's find out a little bit about yourselves. Uh, Sarah, do you want to kick us off? Just sort of introduce yourself and and where are you coming to this from?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So my background, I guess, is animal behaviour and storytelling, which kind of led me down the path into environmental journalism. Um, and I have absolutely no background whatsoever with grouse or deer or any of that. So I was kind of coming at this. Um, probably, I guess my my background, I have much more knowledge in the rewilding side of things um, and a little in the carbon world. But Clearly not that much. Yeah, a lot on sharks, a bit on grizzly bears, a bit on African wildlife. Um, But yeah, I I really didn't know what I was letting myself in for, if I'm honest.
0: (laughs) So this was a real journey of of learning new things then?
1: Yeah, it was... I mean, I've always grown up um quite well I I lived quite near to the Lake District where I grew up and they there was also um the Trough of Boland just on my doorstep. So I've been in and out of these environments, but mostly using them as like a standard dog walker or hiker or, you know, just, just going and playing out, but I hadn't realised quite how much um there was to, to maintain in these places.
0: And Byron, recently, most people who will be familiar with your work will associate it with working in Africa yeah. um, and conservation stories over there. Um, what what brought you to do this here then?
2: So most of the time I spend with a camera in my hand making short documentary films, like you say, pre- predominantly in Africa, conservation stories there, which are some of the most, the most controversial in the world. But uh, Scotland is home. The Uplands is home more generally. And it is changing at such a rapid rate that I felt like it was something that I really wanted to do at home, actually not be on a plane traveling so much and deal with this um, shifting landscape and really spend the time in the uplands, a place that I love, drag Sarah into give that um, alternative perspective on it because she's, like she said, her her expertise and things that she's dealt with in the environmental circle are so different to mine and that kind of balance was really important. And likewise, having you as the producer, Davey, in this with your news background, I think was a, 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 a nice way to bring it to a close and make sure that we were t- tackling it in a, in a fair and honest way.
0: So the Uplands. The Uplands. One of the most vast, sometimes some would say empty, but but clearly not, uh, areas of land in the country. Being so big uh, means that it is a, a big lever for change. So when we want to uh, tackle climate change, we look at this space. When we want to plant more trees, when we want to control deer, this is where a lot of these things are. So this is a focal point for a lot of these things. So that's why it comes to this conversation really Uh, and I think what would be interesting is I mean Sarah from your perspective over this journey what did you find that really surprised you then when you started looking into the change that is happening in this landscape
1: I guess I I I was blissfully ignorant <laughs> for a start that there that there were so many changes taking place. I knew nothing about the... I, I had an idea that we have a lot of deer. I'd heard that rhetoric all around the country, you know, down in Devon and in Lancashire. I, so that wasn't a surprise. I had sort of in recent years seen a little bit of a, 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 a I guess, the first inkling of, oh, tree planting and deer don't really go together. I see here, you know, I'd heard of places buying up areas of land to do tree planting, and I sort of suspected there was an issue, but I had absolutely no real knowledge on peat. I had no real idea about the situation with wind farms. Um, And I also hadn't really considered, uh, I guess naively i looked at the uplands as quite a barren landscape and and i'd always had that same rhetoric that i've heard again and again and again since doing this from other people who felt the same but it was you know these are not natural environments they look like this because of sheep farming or they look like this because of grouse or something else and and i always just kind of felt like oh what a shame you know that's how that's how i I saw it and i came to it. i thought you know I had that belief that trees and forests were generally better and now it's kind of shifted on its head and now I'm a bit more confused by everything. <laughs> now I don't know. Yeah, but that's always the way with journalism, isn't it? Especially environmental stuff. You you may go in with one idea but that's the joys of speaking to scientists, is it? And going with an, in with an open mind, I think mm.
2: is really key with these things
0: i mean for me listening to to all of this i mean the refrain is always well it's complicated isn't it and there were quite which, a lot which of we people... got in episode
2: one with <laughs> with paikman which, which we had got a really beautiful line if if you come up with a simple answer about how to manage the uplands then that simple answer has to be wrong well that's why that went slap
0: bang into the titles though yeah. but I, what i thought was interesting is we heard from quite a few people who said that it kind of really depends on what you want because because the uplands is historically is a managed environment it has been created that way uh the, the the choices have to be made as to how how we proceed with it what i thought was interesting is when we did the the segment on insects you know you would expect to say well rewild or let things go wild and that'll be great for insects but uh Jane the, the the brilliant expert that you spoke to yeah, she was great. about pollinators said well no because the rapid change could be damaging too
2: mm. you know since so us can't change that quickly exactly yeah, so the, the
0: managed environment becomes the environment that is the habitat for some uh, you know endangered creatures now so it is uh, the natural thing to say well we should preserve we should you know it shouldn't be all about shooting grouse or whatever but then again if that is the natural environment that some animals rely on out with the the grouse shooting, environment mm. then what
2: then what do we do yeah exactly yeah uh, i was I, that whole insect section I, I wasn't expecting to go there with this mm-hmm. this um journey that we went on but actually it was one of my favorite parts of the series
0: and of course uh, again like like you said in your conclusion of the last episode that you know change is happening regardless when when jaina was telling us about the the pollinators that you know climate change itself is bringing new species that don't live in Scotland, don't live in the uplands, and slowly they are edging marching up. that way. Yeah. And um, there are species that are being edged out, you know, who are arriving where they've never been before. So these changes are happening, you know, and that's why it's interesting to be having this conversation now, because we seem to be at a bit of a
1: crossroads. I think what struck me most is just like how much control humans have in these landscapes you know and and just as you said it's like do you prefer this or do you prefer that do you prefer this and and we just seem to have this um authority to decide and i hadn't really taken I, i just don't think i'd ever fully understood the kind of levels of decisions that we can make when you have such a huge area of land and then the knock-on effects of that, not just for local people and their economy, but also like you say, for the species that migrate there or for insects that uh, are a keystone that then are gonna have a knock-on effect. It just, um, I understand why a lot of people can't agree on anything. I think
2: (laughs) Dr. James Fenton summed it up quite nicely when he said that most of the change in our uplands has been facilitated by the rules and regulations that are implemented by government and particularly subsidies because those subsidies and this goes to the economics which was a big part of the conversation in episode five is the driver whether we like it or not it would be great to just do things for altruistic purposes but economics drives change and so when we saw subsidies uh, and um, dr Fenton talked about this with um, sheep and agriculture back in the 70s and 80s, and also post-World War II, we saw a lot of the draining of the moors, which gets talked about a lot. Um, draining, reducing water tables, it dries the peat out. So sort of the responsible for a lot of the uh, peatland degradation that Max talked about today, and a lot of the reason for the rewetting that's happening on. That was a government subsidy for a purpose, for food production, that shaped the landscape. Now we know massively negatively. Same with the flow country. We're seeing government regulation, whether you agree with it or don't agree with it, that is pushing the tree planting in the uplands, but that's being facilitated because it's something that we've decided at a governmental level we want to see happening. Same with the reduction in the deer numbers. So those, those drivers are what we are living with as we look at that landscape changing. But who's, it's, often, it's, 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 it's interesting how, how often historically that they've ended up really negatively. But who
0: should steer policy if not, you know, a, a well, democratic that's the purpose of government, Ill, isn't it? Yeah. Um. One of the interesting things <clears throat> off the top of my head, I can't remember who brought it up. But one of the interesting things is, yes, steered by grant funding. But to what extent are people watching what is happening in the uplands? You know, so these are not big, controversial populist policies, are they? You know, these are not things that most people in the street are thinking about. Policy no. affecting the uplands, uh, deer management numbers, uh, cull strategy, things like that. But it affects a lot of the, the, the beautiful wildlands of our country. These are not front of the agenda political items, really, are they?
2: Because it's not affecting people in the in urban the masses areas, where most people yeah. live. Yeah.
1: Until you pulled me into this podcast, I had no idea. On, on so many of of these points that we've covered i just had no idea that that things were happening and such measures i i didn't i had hadn't got a clue about the the government raising the the amount of deer that they would like called each year i hadn't got a clue about them changing the legislation so that you could shoot males all year round um i also i i didn't realize Um, when it it comes to the wind farms and and Yeah, that blew your mind a bit that was one of those moments where I just had to sit down and think, wow. We've started it almost feels like there is the train has started and it is going so fast down the tracks. There's no alternative routes. Nobody wants to pump the brakes and say, Hey, hang on a minute, slow down. Is is this the best idea? It's like the the velocity and the momentum that we have behind these movements in terms of monetary value, in terms of public perceptions, in terms of global pressures. When you think of the IUCN and this state that we're in, which is you know a, quite a, a drastic state of change caused by humans <laughs> anthropogenic climate change, you know, um, but it, it, it it's it's that. It's that problem that you brought up, Byron, about how policy is moving far quicker than science. It's terrifying.
2: yeah, and, and we, like Pakman brought that up right at the beginning of episode one, uh, saying that it's frustrating to him and other and his colleagues that it takes a long time to understand the science of change in the uplands, uh, or not just in the uplands, but any but anywhere in in terms of environmental change and all they can do is advise and often it seems the case that the advice that comes from the scientific community isn't necessarily well well i'm, I'm i hope that it's uh, listened to and evaluated it doesn't mean that that's the outcome is going to follow the direction that the science is, is guiding them and we saw the that the science with,
0: can't say that something is good the science can't make a choice no. and the politicians have to look at the options and make a and choice and science can't do that so after five episodes, Byron, what's the answer? You told us in episode one you <laughs> wanted to find out more about the uplands and the impact what have of I change. Learned? Yeah. So you've been on this adventure. You both have. What's the answer?
2: Come on. Is that a cop-out to say it's complicated? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. It is. Um <sighs> The thing that's most interesting about listening through these five episodes doesn't back, but doesn't sound like he's
0: answering it, Sarah. I I'm know.
2: answering it like a politician. <laughs> politician <yeah. laughs> <Yep. clears throat> Is that I was expecting, and I think we were all expecting, more extreme views from the people that we were listening to. But for the most part, everyone came across like they at least wanted to work collaboratively. And they had very level headed um reasons for how they had got to whatever their viewpoint was and they weren't that far apart as you might have imagined going into this you, like the the extreme ends i think if you were to ask the average person on the street the the grouse Moor owner so like a d ward he has grouse Moor is part of the estate that he owns that might be seen as one extreme end and then someone like max at revive would be seen at, at, at the other end but really when you listen to them talking, there's a lot of things that they actually had in common, which gives me a lot of hope for being able to come to, together to a common future or a common vision where actually maybe we can, have, we can have a bit of everything. But what we see in the media, and I think what we see um, if you listen to like the committee hearing, the, the clash of committee hearings and government, is very entrenched views from both sides not really the conversations we've just had across these podcasts
0: but can everybody win so if we if we we need green energy and we need wind farms where are they going to go as you heard richard lindsay in the last episode Mm. he says you need these whaleback hills he says beautiful need them and that is and that could end up being peatland and he mentioned that the the roads are damaging for the peatland can everybody win
2: I think everybody has to be willing to compromise for some wins. Um, we, we look at things, we know that wind energy is, is fantastic, and f- fantastic and green. We know that trees are brilliant, we all know about the Amazon, but it doesn't mean that they're brilliant in all the places. And that's okay. But we seem to be at a time where it's all or nothing on one thing. So it's all trees or it's all wind farms, instead of being able to say, this is a really terrible place to do this, because it makes it complicated. It's a very difficult narrative to um, to get people to understand. It's very easy to say, all trees are great. And if that's true, in all places, it's a very easy narrative for people to get behind. But if you have to start explaining, well, actually, you've got to pay attention to the peat depth. Uh, then you start to lose people and that, i think that's unfortunate and i think that are not enough credit but people are smart like we're not society generally is not dumb we can we can cope with these nuances but that is not what we're used to seeing we're used to seeing very entrenched polar positions
0: sarah you did a lot of the interviews that involved sort of tree planting and things mm. like that how did your perspective change
1: for a start my idea of what a forest should look like is based heavily on forestry it turns out so i also had this idealization of lots and lots and lots of mature trees lots of coverage you know that isn't i've learned what a forest a natural forest would look like and and that was agreed not just um you know I, I thought that that would be like the argument against, but actually that was exactly the same as what Trees for Life was saying. It was the same across the board, just as Byron said, there is a lot of agreement across the board. So these small clusters of trees in the right places are good. I hadn't honestly realized quite how much carbon a tree or a sapling releases in the soil and then also releases if you put it in shallow peat. Um, I had that very idealistic, simplistic view that you plant a tree and then it starts to, you know, take carbon from the atmosphere and put it in its uh, tree trunk, and that's all good. But actually, what was it, thirty-five years or something, depending on to the, 40, yeah. depending on the tree species before it starts to actually offset carbon. Well, this
2: was on Pe- this was when planted in Peeland. but also yeah.
1: depending on the tree species and the mm-hmm. soil types. It's all
2: trees are not made equal. <laughs> exactly,
1: <laughs> yeah. it's so much more complicated than I than I thought. Um, and then um, I I don't think I'd quite realised in terms of deer, I knew that they were an issue in saplings, but also um, I guess when you're trying to manage the numbers of deer and you can't actually... Uh, easily shoot them in an area that's already forested. You can't find them and hunt them there, but in an open area, it's quite easy. I, I think this blanket number of this many deer per this area, despite whether that's covered in trees or whether that's um, mm. moorland, that that was difficult for me to get my head around where that decision had come from. Too,
0: it is one of those difficult things to get your head around as well. Um, Because I'm obviously not from a background of land management, but when you think about, well, I I love seeing deer when I'm out in the hills and things like that. You see a herd of deer, but you also think, well, you know, reforestation should be good and things like that. But and even rewilding requires a management, an intense management Mm. of deer numbers to allow that to happen. And you think, well... Shooting lots of deer, is that good? And instinctively, as someone who loves animals and loves seeing them and things, you think, "Well, oh, that's an awful thing. I don't want to see a massive cull of deer. But it's these difficult decisions that have to be made, isn't it? That you kind of have to think of something that is unpleasant yeah. to get somewhere else.
1: I, I Also, do you know, I really think that trees are very easy visually for us to get behind and say, yes, they're good. Look at them. That's obvious good thing for the environment. But peat... you know, it's below ground, it's muddy, it's gooey, (laughs) it's ugly, yeah, it's ugly and we don't look at like mud under our feet and think, oh, what an amazing carbon (laughs) storage because we're not taught enough about that and our mindset um, for this, having an intrinsic value as a great big open space isn't quite there yet, you know, whereas we go in a forest and there's so many uh, visual mental health benefits that we get just from being around trees that are proven, I don't know. It's like we almost need to do a big PR push for Pete as well.
0: Can I raise something that really hit me in the face that I did not know was a thing at all? The Great Wood of Caledon, right? (laughs) I know, I know. I can see both of your eyes rolling into the back of your head. Did it exist, Sarah? I... (laughs) For me before, not even a question. But apparently, did it?
1: I... I think it existed in the way that a natural forest looked, mm-hmm. but not in this big, thick, mature tree, complete blanket coverage that we imagine forests as now.
0: So just for context, obviously, this is the the historical idea that hundreds and hundreds of years ago, perhaps thousands of years ago, Scotland was covered by this great, great, wood, great wood of Caledon, this historic Forest that through the years and through um, population growth, uh, agriculture, things like that, has been worn down iron and, and, and no longer that, yeah. no longer exists. And that was, from my mind, what happened. And we obviously see the writings of the Romans and things like that make make reference to this great wood and things like that, which may have been an excuse for not getting up there as well. <laughs> yeah. And I thought it was it was. Um, was a James Fenton it was, yeah. who basically, I mean, in not too polite language, said this is a load of nonsense? It was twaddle, never there. He says, <laughs> he says there yeah. was no evidence for this having existed at all. Well, or for that to have been the reason for that not to exist now. Yeah. And I thought that, uh, that was something <laughs> that made me sit up and go, wait a minute, what, <laughs> what? Yeah. what do you mean?
2: <sighs> Great word of Calvin. It sounds grand. But I think I—I th- I mean, I don't know. I, I, we we speak to experts, and you you sift through the information they have, and somewhere between the extremes, there's probably some middle ground, as there often is. And I and I don't think there was like the enchanted forest that you you, you look at it, and it was dark all the way from the borders to the north of Scotland with forestry, because the landscape doesn't lend itself to that. Well, his argument everybody... his argument
0: was that it, when the glaciers came through, the the meltwater washed the nutrients too deep. Down into the soil for tree roots to, to establish and grow into to large forestry. So yeah. therefore, it started to become more what barren or o- over a period of thousands of years. Exactly. Yeah.
2: and, and that it was it's a really interesting concept. This idea that because we heard this in episode five, like we should be more like the European uh, tree coverage, but our climate is different. And we had very similar climates to Scandinavia just post the glacial retreat, when it was colder and drier. And then his argument was that it, like you said, it washed the nutrients through the soil, and it became less a, a less palatable substrate for trees to grow in. And when they did grow, they grew much slower, which meant that a deer would come along and they couldn't ever get away. And so that's why we, in part, have the landscape we have today, which is a really in, it, it makes intuitive sense at the very least.
0: But on the other hand, have we forested? Yes. Have we taken forest land for agriculture? Absolutely. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Have we changed the landscape? Yes. Yeah. So both sides are true.
1: But that comes back down to the real crux of some of the problems that we have is that ideally a lot of the best places, it sounds like two plant trees would be valuable agriculture land which yeah, we also Pequen need said that, yeah. we also that, need that to feed the population that yeah. was
0: a point of con- consensus yeah. wasn't it
2: yeah. yeah yeah i think pretty much everyone agreed about that yeah if we want maximum to maximize our carbon sequestration which is the predominant reason for doing that planting um you would these fields that are around us right now where we're sitting you'd plant those in trees but we can't because we have to eat and this is this is so this is a trade and and this is the this was the other big takeaway to uh, to kind of answer your question from 20 minutes ago to me is that it doesn't matter what our decision is from from the status quo that we have right now whatever decision you make as to how that landscape is going to change requires a trade of sorts i think that was also a consensus we are trading one thing for another whether that's good or bad kind of depends on your point of view and what you want out of that landscape? Let's like, say
0: by status quo, whatever you want.
2: <laughs> well played, well played.
0: <laughs> as as you said, going to cut that out of the podcast. <laughs> Sarah, one of the things that that I know that you're looking to investigate even further is the impact of wind farms on peatland. Um, through the interviews, you know, we found out some some startling revelations about that. Uh, tell us, I mean, what what was it you found out, and uh, and why did was that so surprising?
1: Okay, so for me. Um, I was very, very shocked to learn that every single, it's so stupid because it's so obvious as well at the same time, but I'd never, the penny hand dropped, but the idea that every single wind turbine needs this deep road to reach it in order to set that wind turbine up and maintain it. And to put the deep road in, you are then going to alter the flow of water and the hydrology of your peat, which can lead to that drying up, which is very bad news when it comes to all of the carbon that's stored in there. I think for me it was the combination of that with the Muirburn ban, which also Muirburn, I didn't know what Muirburn was <laughs> until I came into it. that's this.
2: why you're the right person for I this thing. Like,
1: Muirburn, yeah, cool, Byron. We're gonna look at that. What is Muirburn? Um but this this whole idea that we are gonna not do the managed burns that are being done at the moment means that we may end up with this scraggly, um, drier, I guess, heather or other grasses or other things that are going to grow there in the peat, okay? That in turn is also drying up the peat bog because it requires more water the larger these plants grow.
2: And the pers- perspiration as well yeah. as it, in the wind, which I didn't know that either. He was talking about Yeah, like, uh...
1: Yeah, so you couple that with the fact then that you have um, – areas where the wind turbines are, like you say, with the wind, where that area is now drier and hotter than anywhere else. You've then got a bit of a tinderbox growing on top of this area. If you've got less deer as well, you probably get less deer that are gonna be eating this. This is true. I
2: don't think that's a point that's been brought up, but Uh, you've just-
1: (laughs) You've got got less things that are managing managing this situation. And then we have a, a real issue, a growing issue about wildfires. Around the world, um, but obviously it's something that we are conscious about here because it's happened already in Scotland, right? And and it happened on my back doorstep um, near Manchester as well recently, um, where the Smithells estate was on Saddle Saddle Saddleworth. Saddleworth Hill. Yep. So. I think the thing that, that sort of really blew my mind in this whole scenario was as we were speaking to estate managers and people that worked up in these areas that were very, very conscious of how they were going to make money, um, you know, because the price of, of deer, if you're going to kill that money, that's going down and down and down. Um, and then if you ban the grouse shooting, how are they going to make money? Well, all of these estate managers we're getting letter after letter after letter from wind farm and 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 energy suppliers that wanted to put wind turbines on these beautiful well back hills they <laughs> say and it's just for me it's like oh gosh <laughs> what's going to happen here that that i think for me was one of the totally mind-blowing positions that i just did not foresee us getting into especially because like I, I get the need for green energy, um, but I also have heard and I'm now like busily looking into is is this pattern that we are going to potentially get less wind as well as, with climate, as with climate change. Yeah, it's something the IUCN have mentioned in their um, studies. And, and, you know, we are seeing some areas that are even more gusty, but others that are having less wind. So, yeah, I'm very interested to find out more about that. Pandora's box, basically.
0: <laughs> I think worth mentioning quickly Muirburn as well. Sarah, you were just uh, just discussing the Muirburn. So episode three is when we looked into it because that is such a, a controversial thing. And I think because it is such a visible signal of uh, moorland management. So from the road, you can see the hills burning. Um, what I thought was interesting is we, t- we talk about the new legislation covering it. So there's licensing coming in on Muirburn. So one of the issues against Muirburn is that there is a, a Muirburn code that says you can't burn on deep peat uh, and things like that. And the argument is well we don't know who is doing what. So the licensing tells you and it provides training. And what I thought was interesting is actually when we spoke to people like Alex Jenkins, uh, a gamekeeper on an estate, he was he was in favor, wasn't he? I mean he said broadly, he said more, broadly training good idea. more training more
2: yeah. training is is probably better and um, a better understanding of what's being burnt where. Uh, yeah, he didn't. He didn't seem to have a, a problem with that. Um, the problems that seemed to come in, if we fast forward to the committee hearing that was in in um, the Scottish government, actually came from Bruce here where he was talking about what he saw as a crucial need for it to continue as a management tool of the uplands. And his main main concern isn't about biodiversity. It isn't about anything other than fire management wildfires the the other the, the other elements of that and whether it sequesters carbon was the conversation we had with with andreas but he was as as you're saying the the wildfires terrifying sarah that was his point of view there was he just he thought it would be a massive mistake to take that out of the toolbox of upland management with a view of future wildfires i mean he spoke very strongly about it i felt
1: I mean, it's not just a wildfire though, is it? It's not, ju- oh yeah, and that's no, the- No, prevent mean, wildfires. No, no, I mean, it's not just a, a wildfire that's the panic for these uplands, it's the peat. <laughs> it's this deep, you know, this burn that can go on and on and on under, under the ground. And it's so difficult to manage. And it's such a large amount of carbon that gets into the atmosphere. But that was the other point within that whole Pandora's box of, of wind turbines. If we plant more trees in these areas as well, you know, it really is a tinderbox.
2: It's more biomass to burn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was an argument. I'm not sure whether this actually made the cuts. We I brought we brought this up with um, um, Alan at Trees for Life, and he made the argument that when you have different um, different types of foliage. It changes the speed with which wildfires move through a landscape, and that gives you um, time and opportunity to deal with it. Um, that was his argument there. But when we look at what's been happening in Europe, because the fires have been so hot, it's just been—it's just been—they've just been running. Mm-hmm. And there's a very good chance if you read the if you read the 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 reports which project our future temperatures. And the way that we have these big high-pressure systems like we've had this summer sitting over us for longer periods of time, that's been the pattern. The likelihood is we are going to see, high, I mean, we had the hottest temperatures this year <laughs> again. We're going to see these um, an increase in these prolonged periods of time of high temperatures, which means, I think everybody accepts, means that there's a higher risk of
0: wildfires. Isn't it interesting to look at how different uh, contentious uh, debate issues like muirburn burn depend on, on the sort of length of view you're looking at. So, I think when, when you spoke to Andreas Heinemeyer, who'd done the, the broad view peatland species, he looked at uh, cutting heather, he looked at leaving heather to grow wild, and he looked at burning heather to look at carbon sequestration and, and, and the impact. And kind of, if you burn the heather, of course, it releases loads and loads of carbon. So, it's bad. But if you look in a longer view, it's more favourable, and I think that it's really interesting. Sometimes I think we struggle to to look at the long term.
1: Yeah, and and I also think that there's a a disconnect between each of these different topics. The you know we look at them all as separate things, but they're so interweaved. Just as we said there, you know, you remove the deer, you're going to have problems where you you'll have older drier heather um you don't have the mule burn you have that you don't have the income from the deer and you don't have the income from um your grouse moorland. and you're probably going to get more t- wind turbines it's it's that interconnectedness knock-on effects that we just seem to disregard that worries me
2: yeah time frames is a really important thing and i brought this up when we um got in the first week that we released this podcast when with the bbc interview mm-hmm. was that
0: just Byron getting in that he was
2: on the <laughs> telly there.
1: Yeah. Was it good? Did oh, you get you, were you on though? television? <laughs> Byron. Yeah.
2: Anyway, we didn't know. Um, <laughs> says the guy who who was on TV all week this week.
0: I didn't want to mention. <laughs> I don't like to mention. <laughs>
2: um, a, a lot of the decisions, by virtue of the fact of our political system politicians get voted in every 4 to 5 years. And so whether we like it or not a lot of decision making and the benefits of that decision making is often viewed like within that framework of a period of time. But conservation and environmental decision making can't possibly be that short because we know from I think every single scientist we spoke to that you need to take longer. It's essential. It's critical if we if we want to improve biodiversity, if we want to um, improve the way that we um, live and manage the landscapes for the betterment both of people and for wildlife that we need to take a long-term view but to take a 10 20 30 year view the politicians who are there now are not going to be in their yeah. seats in 30 years time so how do we ha- how do we create a system where we can all sit round a table and say politics doesn't matter here what matters is The good of the landscape the good of nature the good of the ecosystems and how people can benefit from it and it needs to be beyond party lines and we haven't got there yet we absolutely haven't got there yet
1: the trouble is though if people don't see any immediate results if they're not even going to see results within their lifetime you've got everybody just putting so much trust into something that's a big ask especially landowners as well it's a huge ask as well if you're saying we're going to take away these levels of income from you, but trust us; in the long run, you'll thank us for it. <laughs> you
2: know? Well, there's, there's not... that really beautiful quote, which is that societies grow great when people blo- when people plant trees under which they will never sit. And there's there's something really, and we we, we used to see that. You go to the, those beautiful gardens that people love to go and visit in the summer with those ancient old oak trees that were planted a thousand years ago. The the people who planted those were long dead before that was a magnificent tree, and yet we covet them today.
0: And what did the peat survey say for where they were planted? Well, these aren't on
2: peat. <laughs> these are all in lower ground because oak trees don't really grow out there. Um, but that long-term view is something we've definitely, I think, lost. because, And we live in, in in a society of immediacy.
1: It also comes back down to that connection for me. Of nature? Yeah, connection to real nature. Not a idealistic perspective of like I went for a walk a, or I spent three days in a lovely place which is great but like we need somehow to integrate the nuances and the trickiness and the realities of nature into our education system it needs to be there people need to understand it from a child upwards um, for us to appreciate it not just like the benefits of it but just how you know the balancing act of nature I, I just don't feel that a lot of people that have very strong opinions on either direction necessarily always have the strongest, um, like overview.
2: overview and we kind of saw that with the videos because we've been releasing these short little snippets of these interviews well this that's your dog lapping <laughs> <laughing laughs> up water in the background <laughs> and we needed to have a dog in every episode which I think we've now achieved um these these what are they 60 to 90 second snippets from these interviews of you interviewing people Sarah and when you look at the comments that people have been commenting on it's amazing how uh, like emotionally, sometimes almost angry, people respond to these tiny little snippets of either opinion or viewpoint. And then when you ask, "Well, hang on," and it it says at the end, "You know, listen to the whole podcast." So at the end of every single one of these, have you actually listened to the episode? which is 25 plus minutes long, where you can get much more of the nuance. You can't get nuance in 90 seconds, but you need a hook to get people to listen to it. And I'm not sure if anybody ever said that they did listen to it or they hadn't at the point where they commented.
1: Some people have gone away and listened and come back and then come back with more feedback and been like, yep, they really enjoyed it. Um, and Or they're glad to hear that there's gonna be more on this topic or the next one's on that topic. The odd person, I guess, that feels very strongly has said, well, I'm outright not going to listen to it because I've just heard this 15 seconds and I don't agree with that point of view. <laughs> so silly. But that's, you know, that does not help us because, no. oh, sorry, he's, he's uh, having a good shake over there. It's Yamba in the background. Um, but no, that... that narrow-mindedness and that unwillingness to bend and compromise in the grander scheme of things is is really what's holding up conservation, important integral conservation, not just here. This is just a small case study for me, the uplands, and for you, Byron, and, and probably for you too, Davy, but this is being repeated, rinsed and repeated all around the world. Um, there just seems to be too many egos involved.
0: Right. The most important thing to discuss, Byron, a refrain throughout this podcast has been you greeting dogs. Hello, I see you. I see you. I see you. I see you. As the person who has edited each and every one of these podcasts lovingly, well, the, the, pro- the problem is that dogs, I'm sitting Byron, here. We're sitting here, and dog Sarah's dog met? is
2: in the room. But if I'm excluding episode present six, the <laughs> present company accepted. excluded, I feel I feel like um, that when we met Kathy. because yeah, she she be had great. a couple of dogs. Yeah, and I think you probably got the the most emotion in my voice as to when. <laughs> When we met those dogs there. I was talking Never talking
0: yet. to the dog like it was a small child.
1: It <laughs> was a young one as well, wasn't it? Yeah, there? There was yeah young... it was a pup.
0: Yeah. Um clearly your favourite bit. Uh, Sarah got to get involved with the food side of things. Well, she absolutely well, loved that. Which was <laughs> uh, that was a bit of a jolly, wasn't it, Sarah? Really. <laughs> it wasn't really a work day that uh, one.
1: That though was actually another piece of information that totally blew my mind. A
0: fascinating interview. It really it, was. It, <laughs> it, it,
1: it, it, Tim's amazing.
0: Tim Adams, the the chef and and broadcaster as well, who was giving you a a lovely venison meal, wasn't he?
1: He made such a valid point, which was, you know, we have a situation right now going on where um, bills are higher than ever. The cost of living is higher than ever. But we have this amazing healthy food option, which the government's now, you know, suggesting that we're going to have more and more of. Why are we not marketing venison better? Why are we not using that in in schools or in other places? It's it's still seen as this luxury product, but actually, when we went to the game dealers, they they were swamped swamped in venison. They had yeah. more than and they the could shift, and the price is declining. And the price is declining because the venison. market's flooded. So we that was another thing where we just really need to change our mindsets because it would be a crying shame to me if that meat was wasted.
0: It's not cheap in the shops though, is it?
1: No, it's so expensive. And that was the
2: thing that we couldn't quite understand because you asked this question when we were at the game dealer, Sarah. Mm. So I don't understand. So where's the value add? Why is it so expensive for me to buy it in the shops?
0: So for anyone listening, uh, obviously episodes four and five. So four when we focused on animals um, and five is when you're going to hear a bit more deer. Five is when... um, Sarah, you're interviewing in a, a game dealership as well, hearing a bit more about the business. An yeah, art
2: guy came up and
0: exactly, uh, and about how they're they're struggling right now, and and where is where is all this meat going, and why can't we buy it for cheap? It's a very interesting question that we we haven't admittedly been able to get to the bottom of. It's
1: it's like wonky veg, right? Mm-hmm. Because because they can't say for definite how old that deer is, you know, um, and it, it, it's all of the constrictions of supermarkets um but then you know it's 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 also a mindset of of the public because I still know lots of people that have um, never eaten venison or maybe... I fed you
0: venison last night.
1: I know, and it's delicious. You know, for for somebody that eats meat, I would say it's delicious. Um, and that's
0: episode two, isn't it, with Tim Adams? We can go back yes, and listen to, if you want two. to hear a series interview, because it was really interesting. And her tasting the great food at the end. <laughs> but, but,
1: but for me, from like a welfare perspective, if these animals are being taken out of the system anyway, you know, and they've had a, a rich natural life... And we know that that is done in a sustainable method and in a very humane way, in many respects for me, this is far better than than some of our alternatives, and it avoids it being wasted so it's a no brainer, but it doesn't seem to be happening yet
0: so I think it just contains so many more variables than other food it though, does, and I yeah. think that comes back to what you were saying about connection to uh, our food connection to mm. our uplands and, and our wild land is that obviously it's not a pre-packaged meat. You can't guarantee, like you can with you know factory farming, that this animal has lived 50 days under yeah. these exact conditions and that's the meat you're being given. This yeah, and it's animal, only
1: eaten this or it's only eaten that. Which
0: is a, a completely other con- conversation um, about how you reflect upon that. But, you know, th- this is an unusual, it's lived a life. It's you know.
2: I think what's a real shame is that we could, with um, a different frame on this, view it as a great success story. Here in the uplands we have this amazing resource that we can feed humans with and it it, it should exist in this landscape, That should be a success story. Yes, you could argue in some places there's too many, in some places you can argue that there's maybe not enough and we need to balance it with our desire to plant trees in place. And how do we do that? Is it with fencing? Is it with uh, reduction culls? Natural, but this is predators. A, this, natural predators. Natural yeah. predators, you know, is, a, is another argument. Yeah. Um, some people would agree and disagree with whether that would actually make an impact on the deer populations to the to the extent to which we need.
0: We heard very, very briefly from Pete. W- Cairns we did very about briefly that episode four. Um,
2: um, that might be a whole other podcast. That's, yes, yeah, that's, I know that's, right. <laughs> that's a whole other box. podcast. He, he, he yeah.
0: talked about not wanting to be the wolfman of the highlands. Exactly, this, yeah. which which was
2: smart because it, it's something that has been kind of overdone. And to his point, we need to. It's a ground up approach.
0: Rewilding charismatic approach. megafauna. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. But it's a it's a it should be
2: an amazing success story. Like we have this great resource. How wonderful is that? That we can feed people with a wild resource sustainably. Unfortunately, that was one thing that did come up when we were at the game dealer. Is with the increase that is starting to come through. That level isn't sustainable. So they're having to deal with this big influx and increase in calls and all of the staff and processing to be able to deal with this extra volume. But that's not going to last forever because the the whole point behind the increased culls is to get a, a lot of deer through the food chain and off the hills to help um, tree regeneration. So these are these are new rules. These are for, new rules. Just for context,
0: that that allow land managers to cull male deer across a longer period of the year. Use specialist scopes, night sights, so they can cull them at night, so increasing the amount of time that you have as well. And there's new ammunition as well, so there won't be uh, as much well, lead shot used as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so these are the the new things coming through that are really affecting how uh, you know game dealerships and and this deer stalking is is done. Mm.
2: I brought this up in episode five, but what's interesting about the male deer season being opened is that populations aren't controlled by controlling the males at all. It's all with the female population. So deer management historically has, if you go to most of the estates around here, the vast majority of deer that they cull for deer management to keep the population, because it's in their interest as well that they don't overgraze an area with the males, has been predominantly through shooting females during the hind season. So shooting the males isn't gonna make that much difference. And that's that's does that the kind of population- the,
0: Forgive my ignorance, but does that not just reduce the number? It would re, it would so, reduce
2: the overall number, but it's not a population control measure because they're not the ones it reducing dropping- reducing the cars.
0: population though.
2: Yeah, but that's not how you control. If you want to reduce populations, you have to re- reduce the breeding part of the population because one male, particularly with red deer, one male is going to service 25 females in a, in a harem so you don't need all of those 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 extra males the actual dropping of calves in the in the season in may is done by females so population control measures are not done by reducing male population
1: this is where the argument comes in that you're actually affecting the genetics variability aren't you if you take a load of males out and it is usually one male that's gonna populate an area of, you know females if you're taking a lot of those males that would naturally compete against each other and the strongest them? ones survive. What's mm. the knock-on effect?
2: well i'm not I'm not sure how much selectivity is going to be going on because that's been that's something that has been very common practice historic with tradition, mm. is selectivity of the animals being taken out for the health of the herds. But I'm not sure how much selectivity is going to be going on with the rapid increase in contractors being paid per head. To get it through the food chain—that's—it's a whole other discussion. But I was we, going we, to say,
0: but is the scale of the the population cull? I mean, it's quite an unpleasant thing to think about. Mm. But is it so large that perhaps they do need to think differently about how they do it?
2: About how they actually do yeah, it?
0: Yeah, I mean, there, does there need to be such a drastic reduction in numbers that these traditional methods that you you're discussing and thinking about the way that it's been done before mm. that perhaps? As unpalatable as it is to think about, if we are to reform the uplands and have a different way of doing things, if you're gonna rewild, if you're gonna reforest all of these things that unfortunately does there have to be a drastic drop. We mentioned Deer in almost every episode we
2: did because- yeah I think one of the interesting parts of that of the the conversation at the game dealers and i i'm this makes perfect sense if you think about it is him talking about how. And in reference to extending the, the male deer season, is that during the rut, that sort of one month during the, the rut, it's the worst meat to eat because they're not really eating very much. So they're losing a lot of condition. It becomes quite tainted because they're full of hormones. I thought that
0: was extraordinary. It's really fascinating. 30% of the, the game he is dealing, he says he personally wouldn't eat. Because of
2: because of the taste of it. Now, we, what we used to do is we used to export that. So it was never wasted. It was exported to Europe pre-Brexit. Now it's very difficult to export. So now there isn't really a great market because we don't have a taste for that much stronger meat here. It was made into a lot of sausages um, in Europe. So by ex- by changing the season and removing the burden of shooting most of those males during the rut where, they, where they're the worst condition that they are in the entire year, that makes great sense. So to your point, does there need to be change? That seems like a it seems like a sensible thing to do because why do you want to put meat into the food chain that's not great to eat?
0: It's incredibly unpopular, yeah. uh, mass culling. You yeah, deal. it is very unpopular.
1: You just reminded me of something else that, that we learned at the game dealers as well because it wasn't just that they can't export the meat anymore but he also said that he used to export the skins because I remember there were so many products. I was like, you know, I wanted to see where everything went yeah. and there were so many parts where I was like oh does this go for pet food no because the regulations have got really really tight on that so this now goes in the bin oh, okay what about the skins where do they go well we used to export them to china but actually now we can't because of our dealer and the regulations and now that doesn't happen so the the wastage is still there as well it's like a it that there's such makes uh, great leather
2: as well. Yeah, <laughs> really exactly. There's leather. such a,
1: a large amount of material there that really it would be good if somebody just jumped on it and and made use. If we are going to take these animals out of the the food chain, can we can we use them for something? If you're going to the idea of being in it, I think made it mm. even harsher.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it feels like I mean our conversation about the uplands is. Coming to an end after Sadly. so many months of doing Sadly, that.
2: or relief. One of the two. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, but now I suppose the, the conversation has to continue and I hope people who've listened to it will have at least had a few things that have made them think or think differently or think again. Uh, Sarah, what would you hope that people who've listened through this series would, would take away from I, what they've heard?
1: I would really hope that they maybe came into it with just for, for the people like me that came into it maybe with less knowledge left with more knowledge that's all I hope really is that you know like minds will have been opened and that there is a consistent um overlap of viewpoints where you know there is a there is a, a happy medium in in all of these extreme points of view although they're you know from the outset sounding really extreme when we spoke to all these different people it seemed that there was an overlapping area where we might be able to move forward and keep most people happy seemed that way anyway what do you mm, think it way?
2: did seem it did yeah it did seem that way um, it would just be great if the kind of discussions that we've had on the podcast happened more broadly it would I be think. great
1: if you could get all those people in one room. In the same room. Yeah. yeah.
2: And I'm sure everybody would probably get on.
0: What do you think for you, Byron, is the main takeaway from these episodes that we've done? Go
2: go into discussions with an open mind as you can. Try and be aware of where you're – because we all have our own biases from however we were brought up or the things that you're involved in, which are quite difficult to get past, but at least be aware of them and acknowledge them and kind of own them. So that you can try and understand where other people are coming from, uh, and be willing to have those discussions, and be, and be willing to hear things that you don't want to hear.
1: Yeah. And just because, because, you, we, don't we, like just because you don't not like it, just because you don't like it, because I think we have a
2: tendency to say, "Well, I don't, I don't like their point of view," so I'm not even going to listen to how they got to that. But then, when you actually sit down and you have a conversation with somebody, whether it's something you believed in or not to begin with, to your point, you realise that there's a lot of crossover. So I think the more that we can do that, the more chance that we have of creating a future that's good for everyone. I don't think it needs to be an all or nothing. I think that we can all have a bit and we're all going to have to compromise and it's always going to be a trade. There'll be some winners and there'll be some losers, but we need to try and find what that terrible word balance is.
0: (laughs) I think for me, it's that this is important, that this matters, that this is not the preserve of hunt and shoot and fishing people what happens in the uplands affects you and your house in Brecon or Falkirk or Edinburgh too because or this is or Lancashire exactly <laughs> uh, because this is our path to net zero this is carbon sequestration this is uh, where your power lines are going where your power is coming from your clean water um, you know the wildfire on your doorstep all of this matters immensely and is not a discussion for somebody else. It's a discussion for you at home. And I think that's what's really stuck out to me is just how much this translates, you know.
2: I agree. I think that's a brilliant way to wrap this up. Well, thank you, Davy, for going through all of these million interviews <laughs> finding uh a way to stitch it together that was entertaining for people to listen to and to you sarah for uh, putting up with me on a road trip as <laughs> as we we're going through and you know speaking to these different experts and peoples with opinions in the uplands it's been it's been a lot of work putting this together but it's also been uh it's also been brilliant it's the kind of uh podcast series and journalism and investigation on um, a topic that i'd like to do more
0: of And of course, thank you everyone at home who has listened to all of these episodes and joined us on the journey through the uplands and commented and questioned and gave us great feedback on everything we've been trying to do, which has really steered us along the way. Uh, Thanks very much for listening and spending all this time with us.
2: If you would like to contact us, ask us a question or find out more, head over to www.thebritishuplands.com.
1: The British Upland series is presented by Byron Pace and Sarah Roberts. Co-produced and edited by David Shanks as part of the Into the Wilderness podcast, an MH Studios production.